sesquipedalian, obscurantism. Sesquipedalian, one who is inordinately infatuated with polysyllabic obfuscation, preferring never to employ a less complicated syntactic arrangement of descriptive words when there exists a single expressive unit that amalgamates the multiplicity of morphemes comprising the simpler phrase. Among the manifold objectives of multisyllabic holophrastic verbalism are those of rendering the author's meaning indisputably precise yet simultaneously incomprehensible, demonstrating through superior orthography and lexical awareness that the writer is manifestly more erudite than the reader, disempowering intellectual challenge to the proponent's argument by using machinations to divert discussion to the establishment of the opponent's comprehension of the vocabulary as opposed to addressing the factual import of the treaties which upon analysis may well prove amphigorous. Okay, so this... Mark, Mark, can you now explain all of that to us? <laughs> Hello and welcome to Pedagodzilla, the podcast that takes the monstrously impenetrable world of pedagogic theory, research, and observation and makes sense of it through the far more enjoyable lens of geeky games, books, film, TV, and comics. Did you catch that? Did the full meaning of all those components sink in? If not, you may be experiencing some understandable cognitive overload, which brings us on to today's subject, cognitive load. This episode, we answer the question, how does the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy help Arthur Dent take a cognitive load off? Okay, we should probably introduce ourselves. Uh, hi, I'm Mike Collins, a guy with a microphone. I'm Mark Childs. I'm a doctor of education. And I'm just Mark Williams. And we three are learning designers at the Open University. So first, we should probably quickly, for those of you not familiar with it, explain what the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy is. Okay, it uh, was originally a radio series, then was adapted into a book, and then a towel, and then a play, and then LP, and then, um, and then a movie. And it's about a guy who survives the explosion of the Earth because his friend is from Beetlejuice. He Arthur, rescues him. Uh, Arthur Dent and Fall Prefect, yes. respectively. And they uh, travel through the galaxy trying to find the ultimate answer to the... No, the ultimate question to which the ultimate answer is 42. And they're helped on their way through a useful little guide, which kind of preempted Wikipedia in by about 30 years. And smartphones. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Although... Uh, Smartphones are in the Oz books. So, no, you know, Wizard of, Frank Oz. Elbert, Wizard of Oz, uh, they, they keep in touch with mobile phones. Not smartphones, but mobile phones. I don't remember that from the movie at all. Ah, at at no movie. point did Dorothy whip out her <clears throat> iPhone and take a selfie. No, no, but in the books, they keep in touch. Through As they're walking through Oz, they keep in touch through mobile phones. And huh. this was written in the 1910s. Part one, the pedagogy. Next up, let's break down what cognitive load is. It's somewhat within the name. The theory was developed, or I should say, uh, sort of popularised back in 1998 by Mr. John Sweller. 1998 or 1988? It sounds more like to be 1988, but I don't know. I could go way back. It was a uh, theory developed in 19-something-8 uh, by John Sweller, uh, and it's got deep roots in uh, neuroscience and cognitive science. So you'll find it uh, cropping up in other bits of pedagogic theory uh, and modelling uh, all over the place, really. So the critical bits are that it's based in neuroscience and observation. It's about the division between working memory and long-term memory and the concept that working memory is finite and that you have to account for that when you're trying to teach people. Full working memory means that people will struggle to acquire new concepts. A way to make more efficient use of working memory is to use schemas which link previously learned information or previously understood models to new information in order to properly assimilate it. No, I mean, I think it's got, we, we broached it in another uh, podcast where we were talking about how to scaffold and structure learning for people. And that's a lot of that is based in 
the cognitive science stuff, which is that you contain some bits of memory in a very short-term memory, and then that's kind of transferred into longer-term memory. And that way of scaffolding stuff with that very behaviorist model was all based around knowing how memory works and about how these different structures work within the brain, basically. Yeah, because it, it, it ultimately boils down to that division between working memory and long-term memory. Some people refer to it as learned memory. Yeah, and I think the point with cognitive load is you can't squeeze too much into the processing memory, the sort of short-term bit, before that gets overloaded and you can't actually do any processing with it and therefore it doesn't get actually stored in the long-term bit. So, I mean, that's one of the things. We're going to talk about lots of different versions of cognitive load. But the introduction that Mark read out is exactly what happens when you bash too many concepts together in too brief a period. While you're still trying to process what one word means, you've got another one in collision with it. There's no way to then bring those two separate ideas together to form the actual overlying, overriding concept. So you just get lost. Yeah, and I'd like to say that I probably can't repeat any word of what I read out at the beginning of this podcast. You say none of it sunk in? None of it. No, and actually what it's saying is something very, very straightforward, which is that some people use that kind of thing, that kind of, there's lots of different ways that people will deliberately overload people cognitively, and one of them is to make themselves sound impressive, and we see that a lot in academic stuff. That's what we're trying to counteract a lot with this podcast is it's not that complicated, but actually you can make yourself look more important. And there, and also, they also mention in that that you can sort of drown out any opposing thoughts by somebody who's not got all that vocabulary, but just sounding so erudite that you've got all these words mm. that kind of just overwhelm somebody just else. Just with a willful yeah. obfuscation. Yes. Ob- is it obfuscation? Obfuscation. 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 Well, I would like to, to say that it probably seems to me a little bit like a textual wall that doesn't really allow you to get anywhere. And I think the purpose of language is to allow a route through into some kind of connectivity and and just kind of bombastically uh, projecting words at people doesn't really allow for anything to happen. I don't I think it is worth saying though that some of that isn't going to be intentional it's because they're seeing because they already have that knowledge working in their learned memory to them it has the extra depth within there so they go well actually no I can't say seven here when in fact I should say this completely in fact if we go back to the hitchhikers um, one um, if, for example, we were meeting the Vogons for the first time, um, we might just say the aliens because we might not be able to unpack the concept of what a Vogon is. Yeah, sure. And, yeah, if I was to explain this to Mark, for example, who'd fetched up on a Vogon constructor fleet uh, ship, I would say aliens, just because it would allow him to contextualise the situation at the time. However, a person more in the know would say Vogon because it obviously carries with it the, uh, the connotations. Yeah, I mean, there's a whole set that you could unpack from the word Vogon. So the fact that they, um, you know, they're... Um, <laughs> bug eyed, green bug eyed monsters, that they're uh, incessant bureaucrats, they're the people that blow up the earth. They uh, recruit Dentrassi to feed them on their constructor fleets, all that sort of stuff. Mm. So there's a whole wall behind that. But you're right, it's like a. We also in, in another podcast talk about um, threshold concepts. And yeah, if you've got all these, if you've passed through that threshold so all these things make sense to you, then. Um, then you will actually use these words as much as you like. But those are the sorts of things that happen. And I think it's about being wary of when you've got students is not overloading them with all these concept terms all kind of banging together, colliding in this kind of brain. Yeah, it's, it's understanding that working memory has a finite amount. Yeah. Um, and full working memory, 
basically means that if it's full, you're going to struggle to acquire new concepts, which does neatly bring us on to schemas, which are mentioned within um, within cognitive load. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, the way that I mean, so schemas is how uh, the information fits together as well, so, which is a kind of a critical bit of the transition from working memory to learned memory. It's the ability to uh, model things and link information. Um, which helps them basically move from one to the other. So if you're working off an existing schema, which you can link to learned memory, then it means that you can free up more space within working memory. I believe that's the the idiot's guide to the concept. Um, that's pretty... Yeah, I have nothing to add to that apart from the pluralist schemata. No. <laughs> schemata? <laughs> yeah. Didn't Jesus have them on his hands? <laughs> well, stigmata is the plural of stigma. Ah. Yeah. Okay, so is there anything else that we should mention before we move on? There is something, is to test that knowledge or to give people a chance to reflect on that knowledge before moving on to the next bit. Ooh, is that part of the cognitive... Um... I think that's all, that helps because that then enables people to make sense of this one small bit, yes. transfer it into longer-term memory because they've explored yeah. it and they've bounced it well, back. Well, that's, that's, uh, that's scaffolding, isn't it, to a T yeah. as well. I would, I would say also that if you just project information onto students or learners... Uh, and they have no concept of that information, and they're not grounded in a context. And I think allowing somebody to feel comfortable in a context is really, really important for learning to take place. Mm, absolutely, mm. which is a really good transition because it brings us across to our example for the episode, which is poor old Arthur Dent. Part two, a nerdy analogy. Who fetches up on a Vogon constructor fleet um, ship having found his planet destroyed in an entirely new situation. I would say that when he arrives, he's suffering from complete cognitive overload. Yeah, uh, well, just culture shock at first. (laughs) Possibly other emotions going on in there at the same time. So, yeah, I mean, it's a completely alien environment. And so what Ford does is he gives him the, the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, and bit by bit, as he encounters new things on his journey through, first of all, the Vogon ship, this thing unpacks it and tells him what's there when he gets a fish in his ear. It explains to him what the fish is for. You know, when he sees the dentrassi and tastes the food, he gets all this background on what the dentrassi is. So each single thing is unpacked. And obviously this isn't, this isn't just for Arthur Dent. This is a device for the listener so that they can actually, and, uh, you know, so they can actually understand more about this world as they're hearing it, mm. as it's being told to them at the first time. And this is a problem with any kind of fantasy science fiction thing is that there's a massive amount of different information that's thrown at the reader or the listener or the viewer at once, and finding a way to gradually introduce that to whoever's, you know, the, the audience is a really difficult mm. thing because <laughs> on the one hand, you could confuse people by not explaining it, but on the other, cognitive overload, but on the other, you could, uh, everything could get bogged down by just masses and mm. masses of explanation. And this is why The Hitchhiker's Guide does a great job of just reducing the cognitive load on Arthur Dent's poor noggin. Um, in that it takes the crucial bits of information and it boils them down. It presents them uh, very simply. I mean, the language used, obviously, the uh, the quote that we used in the uh, the top of the episode is, uh, is very much the exception. Um, here's a quote slightly later on uh, about robots. Robot, a mechanical apparatus designed to do the work of a man. From the Encyclopedia Galactica. Your plastic pal who's fun to be with. From the marketing division of the Sirius Cybernetics Corporation. Uh, so, as you can see, nice, simple language used. Um, and it just breaks the concept down really simply. Uh, why don't we go look at this one for Vogon Constructor Fleets, back to our Arthur Dent arriving on the ship. Vogon Constructor Fleets. Here is what to do if you want to get a lift from a Vogon. Forget it. They are one of the most unpleasant races in the galaxy. Not actually evil, but bad-tempered, bureaucratic, officious, and callous. 
They wouldn't even lift a finger to save their own grandmothers from the ravenous bug-blatter beast of trial without orders, signed in triplicate, sent in, sent back, queried, lost, found, subjected to public inquiry, lost again, and finally buried in soft peat and recycled as firelighters. The best way to get a drink out of a Vogon is to stick your finger down his throat, and the best way to irritate him is to feed his grandmother to ravenous bug-blatter beast of trial. On no account, allow a Vogon to read poetry at you. Once again, it contextualises the information using simple language and also terms he'll understand. But with exception of the ravenous bug-blatter beast of trial. Which, of course, what does that look like? Well, it's never actually, it's a bit of a kind of running joke in the book, really, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, the only thing you know about it is that it's so amazingly stupid that he thinks if you can't see it, it can't see you, which oh. is uh, really amazingly stupid. In the play, it's amazing because they actually have this, they all sit on this big chair and then they inflate the chair and it turns into a ravenous blood-battered beast of trial. So as you can see, it's passing information into yeah. bite-sized chunks that uh, Arthur's able to assimilate as he goes along in order for him to uh, sort of continue to survive and live in the universe up until the end of book five. And I would say manoeuvre, the a manoeuvre around the universe more successfully, with mm. less anxiety, I guess. <laughs> no, um, no, no, no. With it's more still, anxiety. Probably still anxiety oh. still yeah. there. But, you know, obviously it's a device for the reader as well. So, and I mean, it is a great device because one of the difficult things about radio is conveying what's going on. And to actually into to have Peter Jones or William Franklin or Rula Lenschke interjecting at times to explain what's happening really does help the listener follow the kind of route of the... So how on. does the information really help Arthur Dent? I mean, the, the thing about the what's-his-fish doing in my ear, I mean, basically, that what he does say, like, oh, this is just... Ford Prefect goes, don't panic, don't panic. He says, what, this is just a culture shock. Wait until I get the my feet... What's it, wait until I um, get my bearings, and then I'll, start to, then I'll start to panic. So does it help him get his bearings at the Zist? And am I, am I right in thinking that there are times I remember him getting quite confrontational? Does he not say in a, in a kind of very, a little He bit. just gets cross at things sometimes. He gets, yeah. he gets cross yeah, at things at the situation. He does call out Thor in that party, doesn't he? So, yeah. If you take just the first book, you could understand. He's, uh, Arthur Dent's basically swept along in events for the first book. You could definitely consider the first book his induction to the galaxy. Yeah. I would, however, argue that by sort of, you know, throughout the course of both the radio series and the books, particularly uh, book four, he's very much a sort of a, a sem- semi native citizen. Oh, okay. so he's, so, he's able to yeah. navigate around independently because he's yeah. independent from Ford Prefect for, so for large periods. Almost. I'd say he's, he's gone from a state of being um, thrown in at the deep end with no idea what to do uh, to be able to uh, semi-survive independently. But yeah. when he, um, he lives uh, on his own in a cave for a while, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, yeah, and he becomes a sandwich maker uh, yeah. for a while. So he has, he visits, has a role within society because he can make sandwiches. When he visits that floating burger place, is there a floating cafe there's a restaurant at the Floating end of the universe. universe yeah i think we've drifted off cognitive okay. load a little okay sorry yes okay reviewing cognitive load then against arthur dent's journey in the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy does that answer the question how does the hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy help arthur dent take a cognitive load off for arthur the reason the how the book helps his cognitive load is that when he first arrives on the vogan constructor fleet ship he says he's told not to panic by Ford Prefect. And he says, like, this isn't panicking, this is just culture shock. Shock. Wait until I've settled down and got my bearings, then I'll really start to panic. So this is what this reduction in cognitive load helps, is that each time he encounters something, he's enabled, his, the book describes something about it and unpacks it for him about the Babel fish, about the Dentrassi and that sort of thing, which means that bit by bit he can develop his bearings. So by the end of the first episode, he's properly panicking because he understands what's going on. 
Hello, Mike here. Um, I'm editing and just realised we missed out a bit. So, uh, the use of plain English in the Hitchhiker's Guide helps Arthur connect new information to the information he's already learned. And this does two things. It strengthens his retention of the knowledge by connecting to existing schemata, uh, so stuff he's already learned uh, or got learned in long-term memory. Uh, and because he's not having to keep this extra fluff in his working memory, um, as it's referencing the learned memory, it frees up space in his working memory to learn new things. So, yeah, schema. Do we think a real-world example of the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy could be one of the Lonely Planet guides? I'd say Wikipedia Do you is, think Wikipedia um, more? I'd say Wikipedia is absolutely the... Well, well, the Hitchhiker's Guide is based on the Lonely Planet guide. Yeah, I mean, is that's it? where he got the idea from. Oh, yeah, he was lying drunk in a field in, ah. I think it was in Portugal or Spain or something, with his just his Lonely Planet guide next to him, and he was looking up at the, at the stars and things, thinking... Oh, I wonder if there's a Lonely Planet guide for the galaxy. Because and I that's where the idea came you're from. put into a, you're in a new context and they're trying to just get you through that context as smoothly as possible, aren't they? Giving you the information that you might need. Yeah, and it's to just... Communicate and, and it's that, the different the similarities with guides rather than a teacher is that when you're, when you're using a guide, it's very students, learner-centred because you are choosing the bits of information you need at that particular time. Whereas normally when you're teaching... You have a kind of um, scheme, not schema in terms of that Mike was talking about, but an actual A process. wider curriculum. A wider curriculum that you, you're banging yeah, the table. Sorry. Oh, sorry. <laughs> that was me banging the table. Yeah, um, we'll, we'll edit that in out. In acknowledgement. Uh, a very good point said. <laughs> Thanks very much for listening. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and wherever you get your podcasts, or whatever website this ends up being on. Um, which will probably be the name of the podcast when it's decided. <laughs> we hope you enjoyed listening and we look forward to speaking to you again next time. Bye-bye now. Bye. Uh, bye. Bye. bye for me as well. <laughs> Another one that's going to be Oh, freddled grunt bugly, thy micturations are to me as plurdled gabble-blotchets on a lurgid bee. Group, I implore thee, my foonting turling drome, and hoopsiously drangle me with crinkly bindle-wordles, or otherwise I'll rend thee in the gobble-warts with my blurgle-crunching. See if I don't. And that's why you shouldn't listen to Vogue on poetry. <laughs>